This is episode two of Functional Fridge Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Greg Lehman about posture, biomechanics, and pain. Thank you for joining us today. Can you please introduce yourself? I'm Greg Lehman. My background is in kinesiology. I have an undergrad and a master's in that in spine biomechanics. Uh, I then went on to chiropractic school, uh, college here in Toronto, and they were great because they let me do research and, and teach at the same time. And then I went back to physio school after that. And so I'm primarily a clinician, and then I also teach a course on the side. So what got you interested in biomechanics and pain science? Even when I was quite young in biomechanics school, we knew that the biopsychosocial was important. So I always tell this story, it's a bit silly, but doing, during an ergonomics class, I was writing a paper on central sensitization and phantom limb pain and stuff like that, because we knew then that pain was not just about posture and form and technique and forces and loads. And then when you're a clinician, it's humbling because so many people don't get better and it doesn't always make sense. So you're always looking for other explanations. So to me, melding pain science with biomechanics has to be done because that's how people work. So you can't just do one or the other, they have to go together. Can you discuss some common beliefs among patients and clinicians regarding posture, biomechanics, and pain? The biggest one is that we think that too many people need fixing, that biomechanics are really important or posture is extremely important. And then it gives the patient or the clinician the idea that there's something wrong with them and that whatever that is wrong, say it's like a tight muscle here or a weakness there or a slight shift in their posture over here is what's causing the pain and it doesn't make sense. So maybe posture and technique and form are really important under high load conditions or strength is important if you're worried about a tissue being damaged, but it doesn't make sense how strong someone is if they just have pain walking around or they have pain sitting. How could strength or stability really be that big of a deal? So that, that, that to me is the, the biggest shift. We're always looking for flaws in our patients and then trying to correct those. And I don't think that any of that is, is really necessary. So you said that posture and biomechanics can be important in high load conditions. Can you elaborate more on that and when they are versus aren't important? So when biomechanics and posture might be important, is I kind of separate them into five crude categories, but maybe we'll just focus on two. High load activities, I think that biomechanics are pretty important. If we go and I jump off a roof, there's probably a better way to land because there you're talking about actual tissue injury and your biomechanics and your form, you know, can really influence tissue injury. So dynamic knee valgus, which can overload the ACL and cause it to fail, posture is pretty important then. But maybe for patellofemoral pain syndrome, where you're not really breaking the kneecap, you know, posture gets less important. Or the other area where I'd say posture is important is like a habit. So I'm sitting slouched. That's fine. That's cool. I'm leaning back. Uh, My back doesn't hurt. But let's say my back hurts when I flex it. 
And then for some reason, I always flex my spine during everything I do. So I keep persisting into the pain and maybe learning to have pain. There the biomechanics is important because it's a habit and I keep aggravating it. It's not that flexing is bad. It's not that there's one right way to sit. It's just that I keep pissing it off and I just need to give it a bit of a break. And does the research support this? Totally, yeah. I mean, high load activities, that's where biomechanists are awesome. You know, where, where tissues fail, that's where we can learn a ton from biomechanists. And then when you see low load activities where it's more repeated, that's where biomechanics becomes less important. I mean, that, that's why it's really frustrating for clinicians when you read the research. It's, it keeps challenging your beliefs and, and you can always find something to support your belief. That's one of the problems too. But it's because biomechanics at some point uh, isn't that important, especially in the low load activities. In terms of the habit, we see that a lot. The best research on that is the cognitive functional therapy research, where they kind of see that the people who, maybe it hurts when they extend their back, what they end up doing is sitting in a more extended posture. And then if you look at their interventional studies, often what all they do is they just change that posture for a little bit, the person desensitizes, and then they can go back to doing that posture in the future once they're not desensitized. So you break the habit for a bit, they settle down, and then they're fine, and it doesn't matter what they do in the future. I hear a lot from patients that they've been told they have scoliosis or a leg link discrepancy and believe that that's the cause of their pain. And sometimes they may have been told this by another healthcare provider. What are your thoughts on structural abnormalities and their relationship with pain? This is where we need to look at the research. And when you look at these things like leg length inequality, you know, scoliosis, anterior pelvic tilt, all of these uh, finding what's are normal variations, they're not linked. And we've had good evidence for decades now that they're not linked. Like the anterior pelvic tilt is always a funny one because, you know, there's papers from the early 90s and late 80s showing that it's a poor risk factor for pain, yet we still get caught up in these things. And it just makes no sense because it's such a pessimistic view of the body that you have to be in this one ideal position or a range of positions that fall into the ideal rather than the fact that we're incredibly adaptable and it's not a big deal. Everyone tells a story in my course, but the first person to deadlift five times their body weight had like a scoliosis like that. It's like a massive curve. You know, it's just not that big of a deal. I don't know why we get freaked out of those little pebbles. Don't fear the pebbles. So if the body is that adaptable and biomechanics or certain postures aren't as important as many people believe, do you think that clinicians should abandon the traditional biomechanical model? Yes and no. I mean, we shouldn't abandon it. We should just reframe it. Like it still has its utility. So, and that's where we can learn a lot from researchers too. It's just figuring out how it's useful. But yeah, I think we still hold on to a lot of things that don't have support. Maybe that's part of our educational system because it's incredibly hard to change the training, I would think, at the level of a university. You know, it would take a lot of people to decide to make those changes. And then because pain is so complicated, people have to agree on what we should be teaching. So it's difficult. And then people still get clinical success using a traditional biomechanical model. And they maybe think that that explains the biomechanical model. And we have to be careful that just because we get results doesn't mean the model is, is correct. 
you know, I think it's interesting when there's other explanations for why people get better. And if we can find what those explanations are, then maybe we can improve our treatments. What would you say is the non-biomechanical explanation for why posture can change pain? Posture can still be linked with pain. Biomechanics is still important there. Like Again, you can have the habit. If it hurts to flex your back and you're always sitting in flexion, it's not weird for changing your posture to help you out. The other non-biomechanical reason why posture can influence pain could be expectation, right? You set people up to think that sitting in a really arched position or flex position or sitting all day is going to cause pain, then it's likely that that can sensitize them. We know that expectation has a huge influence on physiological functions, you know, and certainly in pain. That's why we have all this placebo research. But the best example I can give is taste. Right? So we think that taste is just sensors on the tongue and then it's perceived as an apple, I'm eating an apple. Well, I always ask people, have you ever went to have a, a, a drink of something and it's an opaque glass and you think it's orange juice and you go up and you expect it to be orange juice and you take a sip and it's not orange juice, it was really milk. That thing tastes disgusting. It doesn't taste like orange juice, it doesn't taste like milk, but it's disgusting because there's a conflict with what you expected. Now, if it was just purely physiology or purely sensors from the tongue, which would be an analog to nociception, then we would taste it as milk. Otherwise, it tastes disgusting. You know, and there's the idea of the role of expectation. So if you set someone up to think that sitting in a certain position or sitting too long or having their head forward is going to cause pain, then you can actually increase their sensitivity. So it's not really that weird. You know, we set people up to fail in a way. So aside from patient expectation, if someone is in pain, then why does changing posture help reduce it? Sometimes it doesn't. That's the problem. Sometimes it does. If they're always sitting in the same position and you change it, it that's a simple change in nociception and that can help. The other problem is it doesn't. You get people who are hypervigilant, you know, and it can lead to more sensitivity. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, we would be eliminating all neck pain in the office by going in there and telling people how to sit and getting them different chairs and changing their monitor height. So we've tried these simple postural uh, interventions and they just don't seem to help. Maybe it's the lack of movement that's the bigger problem. It's not like there's one right way to sit. You know, if you, I was in the military before and uh, it, it would hurt just standing at attention the whole time or standing at ease. And technically you're in the ideal posture then. Like, it doesn't matter what posture you're in, sometimes it's, it's going to hurt, and it feels better to do something else. What do you think are the biggest mistakes that clinicians make when educating patients about their pain? I've never really thought, thought about that. I could probably just say the biggest mistakes th that I make, and, and most times I, I, think, I think they're unintentional. And I think you can do this practicing in, like, a biomechanical model, or even in the psychosocial model, in that you, you say something that takes away their hope or takes away their self-efficacy. So in the biomechanical world, it would be, uh, you have pain because your hips are out of alignment and you're weak and you have poor, uh, poorly stabilized core and all these things, and people just think that they're frail. But you can do the same thing with the psychosocial model. You can start telling someone, 
oh, your pain is because of uh, depression and anxiety and everything in your life can make you more painful. So you can screw people up just as much as uh, using either model because you kind of complicate things and you take away their ability to think that they have some control over it. Uh, that, like just speaking in generalities, it would be the idea that that person loses self-efficacy and that they can't do something to help themselves and then they lose all hope and that just leads to the spiral of pain and disability. That would be the biggest one. And I've done all of those. So if I was a patient, how would you educate me on why changing my posture can help to decrease my pain? My big thing would be to say not to worry about it. That if you want to have different postures, go ahead. You can sit anywhere you like. I like to encourage people to think that there's nothing off limits. Certain movements might be off limits for a bit, but in the future you can end up tolerating everything. So I don't want to make a big deal about posture or anything for that matter. right? Because then you start thinking that they need fixing. I know people can, can adapt to any posture that they get in if they desensitize to it. So I, I actually don't make that big a deal about, about any posture. It's just easier that way. Can you give us a patient success story? My favorite success is when we make that shift to thinking, you know, it's not about fixing, it's just facilitating. And you just start doing the things that you want to be doing again. And you get rid of all the fear and you get rid of all the barriers to physical activity. You get rid of all the barriers to resuming the things in your life that are important. Those are always the best success stories where we just facilitate and give them the tools to solve their own problems. So those are always my favorite success stories where I, you end up making yourself redundant as a therapist where no one's relying on you. Maybe initially, but after a while, there's no reliance or it's a, it's a team approach and ultimately you're really secondary. And what about a patient failure story? Oh, tons. What about a patient <laughs> failure? Uh, a lot of what I try to do is, I like to change how people move sometimes to help desensitize things. Or I like to explain that, you know, pain is, is a lot more than just damage. And then, and that a lot of factors can influence pain. But I've had patients where even after three visits, I haven't communicated well, where they don't believe me or I've done it in such a way where they think that pain is all in their head and they still, need someone to, to fix, or that it sounds like I've told them that pain is all in their head, which is wrong. It just means I didn't do a good job of explaining. And then they just wanna, they, well, they don't normally tell you, but they just don't come back. So, you know, I've, I've had patients where I've tried to communicate and I, I just haven't done a good job. Kind of like how I'm answering that question. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump into the topic of sports. Sure. So. Although biomechanics may not correlate well with pain, there's the counter argument that it can be important when it comes to movement efficiency and sports performance. And I know a lot of strength and conditioning coaches teach and load specific movement patterns. So do you think that biomechanics become more important for high level performance? So do I think biomechanics are more important for performance? Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, biomechanics are more important there but I, even there I would guess that there's a huge degree of variability you know and, and I can speak more with with running than anything else where you see a lot of different ways that that people move and when you get in to start tweaking what they should be doing that uh, I don't always agree with that where 
where we think that we can we know what the ideal way to move is and that's pretty tough with our research right now i would say a rule of thumb would be like the heavier the load the less options of movement you have and that's where things start looking the same where people kind of have the same patterns of of movement so that's where the biomechanics might help but the lower the loads you can move a lot of different ways you know and then the difficulty within all of that is people are individuals so the best way for them to solve that movement pattern which or the movement problem which would be to get the most you know performance out of it that they can will be different for everybody and i think good coaches who would more rely on than certainly myself here recognize that normal variability and they probably figure out the right tweaks to 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 make for their individual athletes can you give some specific examples of high level athletes or sport movements that don't follow that normal efficient movement pattern if you look at high level runners and i mean distance athletes you will see that a number of them have what people will consider movement flaws that would be knee valgus overpronation all of these things their arms might cross midline when they're running because those things aren't really flaws we've just called them flaws and we don't really have the reason to do that so those are good examples one of the top female runners in the world looks like her knees are going to slam together and she has an egg beater when she runs one of the top marathoners in the world has a huge amount of of pronation so it looks like that his inside of his ankles are hitting the ground these are just normal patterns for them and we freak out and there's no real reason to do that stuff and so there's lots of lots of those exceptions i mentioned that that uh, deadlifter who did five times body weight with massive scoliosis you know you have there's a a website for um pro athletes with sherman's disease which is like uh, kyphosis you know they these are elite athletes with that if you look at the paralympics there would be incredible compensations and changes in movement patterns if those movement patterns were so horrible then how do we even have the paralympics right the body is pretty amazing and and adaptable so there's a ton and what are your thoughts on movement assessment screens it depends what they're trying to assess like the fms and all of those uh, i guess they call them screens I think they're good for checking those seven movements of how someone does that. Where where it's been tough for them is making a problem a promise of identifying injury risk factors. And it's not their faults because injury is that complicated. So they seem to fall down when it comes to screening who's at a higher risk. But they're good uh if they're used more simply like can you do a deep overhead squat? Well, sometimes that's interesting. It's a good screen for that. but maybe that's less of a screen to find out who's going to get injured. It's relevant if you want someone if someone's doing the clean and jerk or the snatch, then they should be able to probably do a deep overhead squat with just a dowel. You know, so th- so they're good if if you simplify them. It's when you try to make grander claims about injury reduction and performance that they they kind of fall apart. Okay. And before we wrap up, would you like to tell us a little bit about the workbook that you've created? So I wrote like a a really simple uh pain workbook for for patients mainly and it was just set up to be like I mean there's like 30 or 40 pages I don't even know but it was really just set up so that they're one page in infographics with with a simple key message you know so to me a, a big key message for people in pain is that pain is an alarm or pain is more about sensitivity than damage uh, on average for the most part 
And, and that's really just set up so that people can get it for free. They can, you know, start shifting how they view pain as not, you know, it's a, it's a problem in itself, but it's kind of normal. And clinicians can use it because some of the concepts are like they challenge patients' beliefs. And so it's hard to do that with their patients. So sometimes it's easier for someone else to break the bad news and then you get to discuss it. And what are you involved in now? What does a typical day look like for you? You know, I'm a little skewed. I always wanted to have sort of three like uh, areas of activity, which was being a clinician, uh, teaching and research. Uh, and for the past 10 years, I've been too much of a clinician. And then for the past year, I've been teaching too much. So I'm trying to get back that, that balance. So I'm actually gone usually like three weekends out of the month. So that's a bit too much. I'm hoping to do less of that. Uh, and then my, my typical day is I, I still see patients out of my house right now during the middle of the week. Uh, but we're trying to renovate to see, do that more often and teach less so to get more balance. And then hopefully maybe get back involved with more formal research. And how can people find out more about you? I guess my website, greglayman.ca is the easiest or Facebook and all that Twitter stuff. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.